law, liberty, and life in Jesus, knowing how it all works, and later in the two ways, two-thirds through this message, I, I'm taking a little detour, and I warned them up there because they don't have all the stuff that I'm talking about, and sometimes they freak out when they think I'm going rogue on them. How Christians Can Be Drawn Back Into Bondage is the title. A longer text, Galatians chapter 4, and I'm going to read 11 verses. Galatians 4, 1 to 11. These are pretty involved verses. These aren't Psalm 23 type verses. These are verses that require you to think about what we have been looking at, what Paul's argument is, where he's going. And so that's the kind of thinking we have to be prepared to do as we let the Holy Spirit work through this text. Galatians 4, 1 to 11. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, remember last week, the law was this tutor to bring us into the inheritance in Christ. So that's where that heir idea is coming in, okay? Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians. Paul used that term for the law last Sunday. And managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage, and here's this phrase, under the elemental things of the world. Paul doesn't tell us what that is. He just uses that phrase. We're going to look at it. We were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, that's Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. That's us. That we might receive the adoption as sons. And I explained why it's sons. It's not a gender thing. It's in that culture. That's how the inheritance was transferred to the eldest male. And so Paul is talking about all of us, men and women, but he's looking at that image of an inheritance, and that's why he uses that term. Might receive the adoption as sons, six. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, it's the initiative that he wants to stress there. How is it that you turn your back again to the weak and worthless elemental things? There it is again to which you desired to be enslaved all over again? So these Gentile believers, these Jewish leaders from Jerusalem come and tell them they need to come back under all the Old Testament regulations. That's what he means. You want to be enslaved all over again? End of verse 9. 10. You observe days, months, and seasons, and years. All of those things under the Old Covenant. I fear that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. 
What a text. These difficult verses will make more sense when they're connected to the thought Paul was just tying up in 329. That's where he says, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Heirs. He's going to be talking about heirs all through today's text. Heirs according to the promise. So Paul's continuing this line of thought that there was something God was doing through Abraham that was bigger than these false Jewish teachers from Jerusalem were telling. There was a wonderful future plan of redemption and adoption and spiritual life that was promised through Abraham, but would only find its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. They'd be heirs of that, finally. That's what he means in 316. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say to seeds, plural, as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed, who is Christ. There's the inheritance. There's the blessing that was promised through Abraham, but it wasn't given to Abraham. There's a time factor. There would be an inheritance that would come later. We would inherit these things. Okay, so that's the picture Paul is working with in today's tricky text. He's going to unpack this imagery of an heir, of an inheritance. But this time, he's going to tailor his argument in a more negative way than just, war just talking about the blessings of the inheritance. Now he's got some warnings that he wants to tuck in. He's going to warn these Galatian Christians about the false teaching they've just been starting to listen to, coming under the Old Testament again. And Paul's going to use this inheritance image, but in a negative fashion to describe how people miss, how they miss the promised inheritance. If it's a wonderful thing to receive the promised inheritance, justification through faith in Christ, if it's a wonderful thing to receive that, it's a terrible thing to miss that. So that's the part that today's text is looking at. How people miss it and what a tragedy that is. Point number one. Paul paints the picture of the foolishness of an heir, an heir who turns from the only path he has to get the inheritance. It's in 4, 1, and 2. Now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave. He hasn't, he hasn't got the inheritance yet. Instead, He's under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So here's the picture. The picture of a, a potential heir to a huge family estate. But the heir is, he's still just waiting for the inheritance because it's just been promised. It hasn't been given yet. So he hasn't come into the inheritance for himself yet. Now, no human illustration is perfect, but, but Paul takes this simple picture and he kind of tunes it to portray the two great 
promised works of God in both redeeming, washing away our sins, and adopting, bringing us into the family. He says that in 4, 4, and 5. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, there it is, that's one, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption, that's two, as sons. The whole Old Testament era, okay? You've got, you've got this Bible, and, and that much of it is, is getting us ready for the inheritance. It's a big chunk. The, the whole Old Testament era, the whole era of the law, not just the Ten Commandments, but that, that whole covenant that was designed to bring the heir to the rightful inheritance. We looked at that insight in Galatians 4, 1 and 2. I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave. Though he's owner of everything. Instead, he's under guardians and stewards until the time. Look at all the time. Till the time set by the father. So Paul is pointing out. He's pointing out for these Gentile Christians, new Christians, he's pointing out the contradiction of these Jewish false teachers. These Judaizers. They were using their possession of the law. Get this. They're using their possession of the law as proof of their maturity. As proof of their exclusiveness before God. And Paul's flipping it all upside down. Paul, Paul claims to... Lays that claim to waste by showing that what the law proved was exactly the opposite. The law wasn't a sign of maturity and readiness. The law was a sign of immaturity and unreadiness. That's Paul's whole point. The law was given as proof of immaturity, not maturity. The law was the guardian, he says, to point to Christ. The law wasn't the inheritance. As long as people lived under the law, they don't have the inheritance. The inheritance didn't come through the law. The inheritance came through Christ. So Paul is, Paul is taking what these Judaizers are saying, and he's saying it's the exact opposite. The law doesn't prove you're special before God. The law proves you're still waiting for the inheritance. Does everybody understand that? That's the point Paul's trying to make. You see... This text is not just about ancient history. This text has something to say to us. This is a crucial message in terms of today's church and its approach to cross-cultural missions. When people have their own religion, why do they need ours? evangelism in a world that's full of religion and most of those religions don't want Christianity. The inheritance that God has for mankind, you can't get it just through the outward structures of any religion. 
Justification, redemption, adoption as sons and daughters of God. All of this is accomplished only through Christ. He is the inheritance. That's what Paul is saying. To turn away from Christ, to turn back to the law, or any other religious system. Any other religious system that leaves out Christ is not just a mistaken theology. It leaves you empty-handed before God. Like, this matters. It leaves you empty-handed before God. It leaves you nowhere. Then in the next verse, Paul makes a sudden and striking change in the illustration. Point number two. How religious systems can be used by the devil in the production of bondage for mankind. Now you get into it. There's no way of ignoring these verses. I want to look at Galatians 4, 3, and then I want to look at 8 to 11, because these are the hard verses. In the same way also, when we were children, we're in slavery under the elements of the world. Verse 8. But in the past, since you didn't know, did not know God, you were enslaved to the things that by nature were not God's. But now, since you, have, since you know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements? See it again? Do you want to be, and look at this word, do you want to be enslaved? It's not just mistaken. That's not what he's talking about. Just an error. But enslaved to, to them. What's them? Well, somehow it's those elements and those elements. Enslaved. Do you want to be enslaved again? Because that's the issue, Paul says. It's not just, you know, a good idea, bad idea. It's your life in bondage. Those are hard verses to deal with. And I would just bet you, Pastors probably shouldn't say that. I'll bet you that there's not a church in Canada that's using that as a text. Because it's a hard text. The problem comes from the way Paul describes this process of bondage, enslaved. This process of bondage. He, he talks about it to these Galatian Christians and twice... Twice, he says that before Christ, before they were saved, he says these people were held in bondage to, it's in verse 3 and in verse 9, the elemental things of this world. And here's the problem. What, what are things? Paul doesn't say. Just those elemental things. You were enslaved to them. And so people read that. I have, I have 62 commentaries on the book of Galatians alone. And they come to that and they go, things. They must be bad. Paul doesn't want them enslaved to those things. They're elemental. We know that. Either Paul means elemental principles, like, you know, the rules for moral conduct in the law, regulations, rituals, diets, dates, Either he means principles, elemental principles, or he means elemental in spirit, like 
satanic, demonic, evil. So in other words, the issue is, is this. Is Paul saying these people were in bondage to the law with its rules and regulations? Or is he saying something deeper that these people outside of Christ were actually bound by powers of darkness? And the plain answer is, Paul doesn't say. He just uses that term, elemental things. So I want to tell you why, my opinion, I want to tell you why I think there's good reason to think, and this might surprise you, that Paul was actually thinking about satanic powers rather than just regulations and principles. And, and here's why. Primarily, I believe Paul is talking about dark powers because if he was just talking about the law, his words would have very little application to these Galatian Gentile Christians. That's who he's working with. Gentile believers. Well, they could hardly be classed as being in bondage to the old Jewish law. T to me, that's a difficult position to hold. These Gentiles never had the law before their conversion. They couldn't quote it. They didn't even know what was in it. But there are, there certainly are other passages of Scripture that describe the kind of spiritual bondage people can get into apart from Christ. And they, they describe this world's dilemma in really powerful terms. Let me just give you a couple examples. Because you need to know that I'm not making it up. Look at these words. And you, Paul's talking to Christians, but he's talking to them about their life before their conversion. That's what's happening here. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, okay, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. That's what you would see from the outside. They were like everybody else in the world. According to, look at this, according to the ruler of the power of the air, according the the, the spirit now, look at this, working in the disobedient. Ouch. I mean, that's, that's quite a text. Or this one. I love these verses. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Why? Well, in their case, the God of this age has, look at this verb, blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Well, they can read about Christ. They can understand what the gospel means. What they can't see, what the devil keeps them from seeing is the light of the gospel of the glory. They don't see glory in it. Why don't they? Are they just, can't they read? Are they just not bright, these people? Do they have lower IQs? No, that's not the problem. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. What do you see at work in unbelief? 
just a university professor who's smart and kind of mixes up the Christian student so he doesn't know what to believe anymore. No, 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 that's not all that's going on there. That's not all that's going on there. The God of this age blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. That's what's going on. That's what I think Paul is talking about with these elemental, being brought into bondage to these elemental things. My opinion is that's a pretty consistent New Testament picture of the bondage of the unsaved. And it's exactly the idea Paul is laboring over in Galatians chapter 4. That's why he says, I'm afraid. He says, I'm afraid for you. I'm afraid. How come you're not afraid? But there's another thing to contribute to the confusion here. It has to do with the description Paul gives of this bondage in Galatians 4.10. Look what he says. You are observing special days, months, seasons, years. Now, if you're following this teaching at all, right at this point, you should be saying, Wait a minute, Pastor Don, there's a problem here. You just got done telling us you think the issue is this spiritual bondage to dark powers, and now you're reading a verse where Paul says, 4.10, that the problem is they're observing days, months, seasons, years. And he seems to be describing um, the law, not demonic powers. How are you going to put this together, Pastor Don? And it's, and it's right at this point that I want to address what might be what might be the most neglected aspect of spiritual warfare and you don't hear me talk a lot about spiritual warfare because i think a lot of the teaching on it frankly is bogus but there is some valid stuff that you don't want to throw out with the bathwater i want to talk to you about one of the most neglected aspects of spiritual warfare in the church today and i'm convinced that we're in great danger of missing the real battle completely. We've become so inundated with books on the dramatic and the sensational that I think the deeper issues of spiritual warfare are frequently missed. Think about this. When Paul sees these Galatian believers turning back to the law, Regulations, dietary law, seasons, new moons, regulations that were proclaimed as earning the satisfaction and delight of God, Paul sees demonic powers at work. True, these people weren't holding seances. They weren't running around in tombs, running around the tombs, foaming at the mouth. They weren't speaking in other voices. They were... They were religious, they were passionate monotheists, and they were using their religion to avoid Jesus Christ and his cross. And I want to ask you, what do you see in that? Do you see the devil at work in that? Paul did. Or have you become sort of tolerant to the modern plurality of faith and religion that just sees all claims to divine truth as being pretty much equal as long as you're sincere. That's the direction that a lot of churches are going. Why, why does Paul bristle at this kind of demonic activity while we fiddle around sort of rebuking demons of poverty and, I don't know, 
what else? Paul said Satan did his most damaging work not as a raging attacker of suspicious occult people, but he did his most dangerous work as an angel of light. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. I think we frequently miss the point of Paul's words there. This is not a description of the appearance of Satan. But he comes looking like an angel. That's not, that's not what this is about. It's much more about the deceptive activity of Satan among the saints. What, what Paul is saying is that Satan's most destructive work is done when he doesn't seem to be doing anything visibly satanic at all. And Paul's whole point in our Galatians text is that dark powers, the work of Satan, there's a delight in having people pursue perfectly righteous goals, even religious goals, as long as the devil can keep their religion from bringing them to Christ. Do you see it? Do you think Satan's only goal was to hinder you from keeping the law of God? No, sir. Did you realize that he's probably happier if he can encourage you to keep all the externals of your religion as long as you're not relying on the grace of Jesus Christ, the inheritance to which all the law pointed? What do you see as this country fills up with Christ-rejecting religions? Do you just see open-minded seekers of truth? Do you just see nice, polite neighbors? Do you see each person with his or her own attempt to reach God in whatever way seems best? What do you see? The Holy Spirit, speaking through Paul, saw the God of this world working to produce blindness in the trendy acceptance of false ideas. Paul saw Satan at work. Not in seances, but in university classes, in computer networks, television talk shows, all sorts of religious institutions that dot the landscape. This, this is what we are called to pray about and confront with the gospel of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now I'm doing a little diversion. You guys can get ready with that slide in just a second. So put a comma there. I've been thinking a long time about this. I just, I just have a growing concern. My biggest concern right now for the church. I'm telling you what it is. I have a growing concern about the casualness with which biblical truth is being adapted, ignored, modified by many professing Christians today. Especially if you're in between 20 and late 30s, between 20 and 40, if you're in that age group. People have this way of adopting and modifying. I encounter Christians who 
who are free to tell me how much they love Jesus and forgiveness and heaven and love, but they just can't agree with Isaiah's statements about God's wrath or Paul's statements about, about homosexuality or, or women. You know, I don't, don't, I, don't like, I don't like that stuff. And they seem perfectly content explaining the less culturally acceptable teachings of the Bible as merely the thoughts of those particular writers and their understanding that they had at that time with their cultural limitations. And there are just scores of progressive writers and bloggers giving these people all the ammunition they need to argue. And the problem I have with that is the Bible simply won't give you that kind of license. I have a text. You won't see it on the screen. 2 Peter 1, 19 to 21. Look it up. 2 Peter 1, 19 to 21. Peter writes, and he says, So we have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. You will do well to pay attention to it, as to a lamp shining in a dismal place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now here's what I want to emphasize. Remember the argument. The argument is, I don't like what Paul says about homosexuality. I think that's just Paul's opinion. And in that culture, after all, he probably knew about pedophiles and, and uh, male uh, temple prostitutes and abusive sexual relationships. And when Paul writes about homosexuality, he would not have the understanding we have today, for example, of a loving, monogamous, committed, natural relationship. By the way, which isn't true, long before the New Testament was written, predating the whole New Testament, Greek culture was loaded with examples of committed, monogamous, homosexual relations. And that's what Paul was speaking to. There's no way of justifying the claim, well, Paul just didn't know about that. It doesn't stand up biblically, and it doesn't even stand up in the study of history. But these people will say stuff like, I like Jesus and forgiveness and mercy and heaven. I, I, I don't like Paul's thoughts on this and I don't like Paul's thoughts on that. And I don't like Isaiah talking about the wrath of God. Um, these people, they're just giving us their thoughts. And what I want to read to you are these words where Peter says, first of all, here's what you need to know first of all. You can't follow Jesus until you get this first of all. No prophecy of Scripture, no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. Paul isn't giving you his thoughts on anything. He's giving you God's thoughts. He's speaking God's words. No prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. Because no prophecy, he's talking about the writings of Scripture, ever came from the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Remember, remember, whenever somebody comes up to you and says, I just don't like the way Paul talks about this, this, or that, you need to stop them and just say, you know what, Paul didn't volunteer for his apostolic ministry it was assigned to him. And guess who called the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus? Say it. Jesus did. 
Jesus endorses the Apostle Paul. Jesus commissions the Apostle Paul. There's not a word in this book that just comes from someone's own thoughts. Not a word. And I want to say this. If you change the rules, then at least have the decency to say, I'm not a Christian. You're inventing a new religion on your own terms. And at least have the guts to say it. All right, I'm done with that one. Settle down, Don. Point number three. By the way, <laughs> so Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica and he says, you know, I'm so pleased that when we came and we shared with you, you didn't receive our words as the words of men, but you took our words for what they really were. Remember? The words of God, God speaking. That's what you heard. When the Bible speaks, anywhere between these covers, when the Bible speaks, it's God. Just, just settle that in your mind. When this book speaks, it's God. And if you don't believe that, you're working on a new religion entirely. It's not just a slightly different emphasis. You got another religion. Start your own church. Three. How the gospel brings freedom and peace in the Holy Spirit. When the time came to completion, okay? He's been talking about this inheritance, being an heir. When you're under the law, you're, you don't have the inheritance. That's what he's saying. But when the time came to completion, what happened? God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that they might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, now there's a change. Now you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, God has made you, there's the inheritance. At long last, there's the inheritance. When the time came to completion. It's designed to point us back to what Paul said in the first two verses of our text. Now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he's under guardians and trustees until, here it is, the time, the time set by the Father. And then he says, in the in the fullness of time, God sent his son. In the fullness of time. Paul is going to describe, we're wrapping up now. He's going to describe two sendings by Father God. Two of them. First, in 4.4, God sent his son. That's what he says. God sent his son. High Christology in these words. We're instantly reminded of Isaiah's words in, in Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us. The child is born, that's Jesus, born of the virgin, but the son is, is given. So the life of the son, 
didn't begin in the manger at Bethlehem or in the womb of Mary. Paul says that God sent forth his son. He means the son came into the world. He came from one place to another place. John, John 1.14, the word became flesh. It existed before, but it became flesh when Jesus was born. And then Paul says Jesus was born of a woman born under the law for B. So born of a woman, that's the full humanity of Christ. Born under the law, it speaks to the kind of bondage we all live in, our sins. We don't keep the law perfectly. It has to be kept. We need a righteousness, not our own, Paul says in Philippians. To redeem those, there's the forgiveness, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the adoption that's brought into the family. So he sent his son. I said there were two comings. The second thing he did is he sent his spirit. It's in Galatians 4.6. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son, not into the world this time, into our hearts. Wonderful words. Wonderful words, these. God sends his son into the world to provide redemption and adoption. How do we know if this all works? Well, the second thing God sends is his spirit. The spirit of his son into our hearts. And I want to close asking you this question. Do you know of both of those sendings of Father God? I'm just reminded so powerfully that it's never enough just to have an external knowledge, the hardware of religion, even the Christian religion. Something, something has to come, something has to come from the outside. The Spirit of God has to enter the human heart. Paul's come full circle in this challenging message. He says, he says, just as those outside of Christ, they're in bondage to more than they know. The God of this world has blinded their eyes. That's what Paul says. So just as those outside of Christ are under a power they know nothing about, he talks about those in Christ, same thing. They have God's spirit coming into them. There's, there's uh, we need energy. We need regeneration. We need a transformation. We need more than just a download of information, even correct information. We need power. God sends his spirit into our hearts. The spirit of God has to enter. This is how the reality of being an heir instead of a slave, this is how it takes effect. Only the spirit of God in your heart can make you a son and a daughter of God. And I pray that you know that experience in your heart. I pray you know that experience in your heart. You'll be a slave. You'll be a slave until you receive Jesus and his spirit into your heart. Slave means you'll have high intentions for your life. You'll make resolutions you want to stop doing the bad things and start doing better things, and you're going to kid yourself that you can do it. But you can't make yourself right with God.
God has to send his spirit into your heart.